0: Let's turn to John 16. John chapter
1: 16, transformed by joy. If, if, if they have just sung that heaven is my hope, I wonder if we allow that to pervade and work through every aspect of our living. You know, when the chips are down, is heaven really our hope? In John 16, I'm not going to read the whole passage. It goes from verses 16 to 33. I want to read to start with, though, just one verse. And it is John 16, verse 21. I'm wrong. I'm going to read two verses. John 16, 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world, so with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one but no one will take away your joy. Old Mr. Fennick, and you've probably never heard of him, Old Mr. Fennec was a crusty old man and uh, he lived down a gravel driveway, weeds growing up in the middle of the two wheel tracks. His wife had passed away years before and the house was sort of foreboding, sort of darkish and eerie and ooh. There was weeds all around the house, the window, the, the, the curtains never seemed to be drawn. Alongside was a old, old orchard about a dozen trees. They'd never been pruned, and there were moss growing over all the trunks and the branches, and the weeds were, wet, were chest high. But growing among the tops of the trees was a beautiful grapevine. They had delicious grapes, I know, because we lived right opposite. We have seven boys in our family and one girl at the end, and us older four used to get around reading our Bibles every day. We were almost saintly. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) What we had worked out was how, if you borrowed Dad's pliers, we could cut a hole in the wire fence outside that orchard. And because the grass was waist-high, if you stayed on your hands and knees, you could work your way in to the orchard And these grapes had written on every one of them, please pick me. So us boys used to take one or two and imbibe them, and they were beautiful, absolutely delicious. Anyway, when we came home from school each day, we used to pop in and see Dad. He had a draper shop in the middle of Paparoa. And we would pop in there, and we would just say hi to Dad and lark around for a while and talk before Dad says, get on home and do your homework. One day Terry, Reg and Max, the three oldest, were in the shop and we saw Mr Fennec approaching the front door. And we thought, oh my goodness, Armageddon is about to start. He must have seen something. So we went and hid behind a clothes rack or a counter or something. And he came in and he said, Caleb. Dad said, yes, Mr Fennec. He said, my grapevine. We said, oh, good night. Yes, Mr Fennec. Your boys, oh, good night again. Yes, Mr. Bennett. Tell them they can help themselves any time they like. From that moment on, the grapes lost all their (laughs) flavour. They really did. They they weren't like they used to be. The perception was they lost their flavour. The reality was they did not. They were the same grapes, same flavour. Perception versus reality. Reality will always outrank perception. And it is in that context that I want us to understand this morning that joy is always bounded on fact and not on feeling. You may not feel joyful, but if you will go out of your environment and back into fact, your joy will be renewed. And Jesus, with his disciples, told him that the day is coming when you will have a joy that cannot be taken away. The perception today is that we live in a pretty toxic, sick world. It almost seems as though God has lost control and the devil has taken it into his own hands. Every night on television, we hear about global warming, And the belligerence of nuclear nations, moral collapse on almost every front, and financial warmings, and the weapons race, and so on. The other day I was reading about the rising incidence of abortion in America, and the little phrase caught my attention, it said in this article, that the womb has become the killing fields of America. That that shook me. But if a little baby should not be aborted and come into life, it seems now that in three, four, five or six years' time, he can choose whether he wants to be a boy or a girl. And another 20 years, and he can choose if he wants to marry someone of the same sex, whatever it is that he's adopted or she's adopted. And then from there on through the rest of his life, if things going through our parliament become law, he'll be able to enjoy recreational drugs, And then when it gets to the end of life and things turn sour, there's either the option of suicide or maybe with the local bill going through, now you can choose euthanasia if it fits. Has God really lost control? Is our joy dependent upon our feelings? Right in the middle, though, of this particular passage of John 14 through to John 17, Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet and now he had a moment of, incredible intimacy with 12 million. And it started off by him saying, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house were many mansions, if it were not so. And if I go again, I will what? I will what? Come on, somebody knows. I will return again, and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. It is the coming of Jesus Christ, which is the central theme of the Bible, and of my heart, and of your heart, I hope, whenever you have concerns and troubles and things that you start to wonder whether God has lost control. Christ is coming back. I was asked to speak on this particular subject, and fortuitously, yesterday, I attended a conference in town called Awaiting the Coming Jesus, and it was absolutely magnificent. One was one of the speakers was a Jew, the other was a pastor from out of the States, and they kept emphasizing the reality of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Everything else falls by the wayside. All these are the problems we look at, North Korea firing off some more missiles, and China and America arm wrestling over trade wars and so on, it is nothing compared to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just before John 14, the citizens of Jerusalem took off their coats and laid them at the feet of the donkey that was bringing Jesus into the city. Go forward a few hours, and they took his coat from him, his only possession, and nailed him to a cross. They treated Jesus as a king as he came into Jerusalem. Hours later, they treated him as a criminal. They waved palm leaves. A matter of a few hours went by, and they gave him a garland of thorns. They sang their welcome. And a moment later, or hours later, they spat their hatred. And between these staggering mood swings of the crowd was the incredible intimacy of John 14 to 17. Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, one of you is going to deny me, and you other ten are going to leave me and scatter. And that's why Jesus said, now is your time of grief, But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So we have a time frame between now and when our joy will be utterly full and unable to be eroded by the concerns of this life we live in. But before then, hell is having its party. Jesus is dead. They would have sung down wherever they were as Jesus hung upon a cross. Jesus is dead. Streamers fell from the ceilings of hell. Balloons festooned the hallways. The mood was euphoric. Nothing could stop them. Caesar's seal was on the tomb, remember? There was a great granite slab of stone in front of the tomb. The elite of Rome guarded the gravesite. The disciples were dispirited rabble and had fled the master. Victory was the nectar that they imbibed in hell that particular day between the death and the rising again of Christ. The festivities of hell were short-lived, however. The bonds of death were broken. That great stone was simply rolled away. Caesar's seal was totally impotent, and the morbidity that they had was replaced with... uh, their euphoria was replaced with morbidity. There is nothing out of this world that can bring us hope. Now let's turn to John 16. And I want to go to verse 16 to start with. And we have a little phrase there which is repeated six or seven times through the next few chapters. And we start out, in a little while, you will see me no longer. And then after a little while, you will see me. Some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more? And then, after a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. And Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about it. So he said to them, are you asking one, none another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more? And then after a little while you can see me? I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. I want to first of all speak about a calendar that we must adapt to, and that is this little while. This is a glorious biblical phrase. It is one of my favourites. Ruth says to me, Are you going to mow the Lord's? In a little while. Are you going to change the light bulb? In a little while. Are you going to brush the dog? In a little it's a, it's a biblical word, a biblical phrase. I like it. But that is not what Christ was alluding to at all. In fact, if there was any university in New Zealand who did a doctorate in procrastination, I would qualify. But Jesus wasn't procrastinating. And there is some doubt in the minds of those who've studied this passage and write their their books as to what exactly Jesus was meeting. And there is sufficient doubt around it to suggest three possibilities. All right? The first is the little while between when Jesus died and then in a little while you will see me again and you will be full of joy. That's number one. Number two is in a little while I'm going to leave you and going back to heaven. And then in a matter of 40 days or so will come the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and he will be Christ's representative on earth. That's another possibility. The third possibility is that I'm going to leave you From the Mount of Olives, a few days after I have risen from the dead, and then after a a period of time, I shall return, and that time is yet to be. All three have validity, but I want to focus this morning on the third one. Our Saviour is coming back. Let me read these words, and I think you know them well. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself shall come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, And the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So will we ever be with the Lord forever. Therefore encourage one another with these words, and that is when joy should break out. Amid all the problems of our finances and our relationships and our children and our work and our climate, remember Christ is returning. And that is what it is that should absolutely flood our souls. There is a a, um, calendar we must adapt to. We try to manufacture solutions to a disintegrating social order, a destabilizing financial framework, a political world that is dysfunctional, and a natural world that seems to be collapsing. And in the midst of such political and social upheaval, We've got to find joy in these words. In a little while, in a little while, you will see me again. A calendar we must adopt to. And while it might seem that that little while is extending, it is not. God is working precisely to a predetermined plan. So then after that I want to talk about the climate we must acclimatise to and this is in verse 20 to 22 he said a woman will give birth to a child as pain because her time has come but when her baby is born she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world and God uses the analogy that the pain that accompanies childbirth is overcome by the joy that follows. i tell you a truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. But so with you, now is your time of grief. And pain and grief are tough. We cannot get away from the reality that life hurts, that life knocks us in the chin time and time again. And God says you are going to have problems, will you try and stand and face the world and speak to them about your faith in Christ irrespective of what we think of how Israel Folau put his words because of his stand for Christ he is going through a tough time this world drum doesn't beat to the way we want to dance Jesus was closeted with the disciples in the upper room and ahead of him lay some pretty drastic things that were about to happen In John 15, just the previous chapter, we read these words. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Jesus knew the same thing going through the the, the temporary pain and the permanency of rejoicing. It says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and familiar with pain. And then it goes into Hebrews 12, where we read, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Why? Because he knew that in the coming day, all of us in this room, I suspect, would be caught up into the eternal embrace of the rapture of the saints at the coming of Christ. Pain and grief are painful, but they're only temporary. You will see me again. The church was born in Acts chapter 2. By Acts chapter 3, Peter preached a sermon, and by chapter 4, he was put in prison. In chapter 5, all the disciples who were with Peter were also put in prison. In chapter 6, we start to meet some of the believers in the early church by name, and one of them is Stephen. In chapter 7... He's stoned to death. In chapter 8, general persecution breaks out against all believers, spearheaded by a man called Saul. I remember as a kid being thoroughly disgruntled on the evening of Christmas Day. Not the one before, the one we've had Christmas Day. Now all the paper is lying around the, the lounge floor. The toy has been broken, and it seems as though it won't be forever. It'll be another 364 days before anything else like this happens again. Anticipations. Fade. Toys get broken, and you still have to make your bed. Let me read this to you. I rather enjoyed it. Few if, if, few, if any of us, can fully appreciate the misery that disciples experienced in their last night with Jesus. Imagine now you're in the upper room with Christ. They saw the master framed against the rising sun, pathetically agonizing through his last hours, apparently helpless and impotent. The disciples had been up all night, and they had no nourishment since the Last Supper. Then came a dizzying whirl of events, the exit from the upper room, the descent from the dark walls of Jerusalem, the ascent of the slopes of Olivet, the vigil at Gethsemane, with the master repeatedly casting himself down in prayer. Peter denied him, and soon after that, would come the growling, ravenous mob and the butchery of our Lord at Golgotha. That was a misery that cannot be fully described. Then the the scene changes. Can any of us really know what it was like when the sisters charged into the disciples' presence, bursting with mega joy? There must have been a lot of whooping and hollering, embracing and weeping and retelling of the story. The disciples had been cast to the depths of despair, but in just a few hours were hurled to the pinnacles of joy. Imagine the relief and joyous release as they felt in the following days. And as reality grew, they felt like pinching themselves because their emotions had run the gamut from misery to ecstasy. Their joy was far deeper and more profound than any had ever known. Jesus did not replace their their. Um, their sorrow, he transformed it. Jesus did not replace their sorrow. He simply transformed it. And if I leave you with nothing else, I want to leave you with the absolute thrill of the coming again of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm nervous that sometimes we read those words in First Thessalonians and we yawn and say, yeah, 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 one day, maybe, We don't let it burn deep within us and reform and recalibrate our joy in Christ. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. We 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 calculate a day as being from say, forget exact hours. We calibrate from when we get out of bed to when we go into bed. You get out of bed, you go through the day, you have lunch, come home, have tea, pile back into bed. That's a day. But when you go back into Genesis and read very carefully, it says, Jesus made the fish of the sea, and he saw that it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the first day. It seems to turn it around a bit, doesn't it? It starts with the evening. The evening and the morning were the first day. Then he created the mountains, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Then he created mankind, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And that is why we read in Psalms that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And if you look at the full day of our lives, of our existence on earth, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes when Christ will gather us home, and sickness and sadness and sorrow and suffering and separation will be done with. Then we go on after speaking about those two things to the contact we should avail ourselves of. Read in verse thirty to twenty-three and twenty-four. And that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Don't misread it, please. Some people seem to think that prayer is the means by which we get God to do what we want to do. Rather, it is God wanting to, to us to do what he wants to do. I almost wonder in today's world that we don't want to have, if we could possibly do it, let's find ourselves a digital God. Everything's digital. I get on the train sometimes and you look around and everybody is on their phones, playing with them. And if only we could have a digital God, if only we could have a God app, that we could press the button and then God appears like a genie and we could ask him to do what we want to do. Jesus is saying in that day when he returns, you won't be talking to me, you'll be able to talk to God. And we need to make sure that we, have an invita- that we have a contact we must avail ourselves of. I've said it before from here, I think, that in the days of the tabernacle and the temple, God said, I want to come. The flood started. I want to come and dwell with you where you are. But the whole emphasis now is no, you are going to come with me and be where I am. And the intimacy and the fellowship and the joy is beyond the mind that the mind can possibly ever take into into calculation. And then the fourth thing is the conquest we must attune ourselves to. For we read in verse 33 these words, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace, in this world you will have trouble but take heart, I have overcome the world. Christ is in control. I used to play chess as a little fellow. I wasn't very good at it, but I learned the phrase of the, um, the pawn sacrifice. And that is you're playing your game of chess and you think, if I move there, I'll sacrifice the pawn, but I'm happy to do that because I can then move out here and I'll be well-positioned to take the next move and I'll close the game out. The pawn sacrifice. I looked it up on Google just before I came out. It is a move in chess in which a player sacrifices his pawn for an advantage such as more space for his bigger pieces, his stronger pieces, or positioning them in a better square in order to develop an attack subsequently. And we've got to develop a God's eye view. God is able to move you and me. We are pawns in the game that God is playing. I mean that respectfully. Develop a God's eye view. God took a man called Paul and put him in a prison in Rome. Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. They said, okay, to Caesar you will go. He never got there. He got put in a prison. There he was manacled to guards. So Peter preached to them. Some of them slapped us round the face. Others accepted what he said and became followers of the Master that he talked about. Some of those soldiers were then recommissioned and sent off out into the world as we know, it, as they knew it then. And one of them would be in Spain, another one would be down in Greece, another one would be in Turkey, another one would be down in Libya. And these men were spreading the gospel and could go to places that Paul couldn't go to because he wasn't fourfold. He was only onefold. And he preached to four soldiers and they took the message out. And God made a pawn move. He put Paul in prison and therefore the gospel of Christ was spread. He took a man called Peter and put him in a prison. And a few scattered People who knew Christ gathered in a room and started to pray and wondering whether anything would work. There came a knock on the door, and there was Peter, and they knew something of the power of prayer, because God made a pawn move. There was Joseph, who was put inside a pit by his brothers and sold to go into Egypt. There he became the servant of Potiphar. And there he was seduced or attempted to be seduced by Potiphar's wife, and he resisted, and he was put back into prison. And you know how the story unfolds and God moved a pawn called Joseph so that later he could feed the world, the world as we knew it then. Don could, John took a, God took a man called John and put him on a little rocky outpost called Patmos. And we can go to our Bibles today and read the book of Revelation where we get some appreciation of heaven and what it's going to be like because God moved a pawn called the Apostle John. God took a man called Daniel. He was supposed to be staked on two legs in the lion's den and dead. Instead, he became a prime minister of the country and of the known world. It hurts to know what God is doing with Brad. But God puts people back on the wheel so they can remold them and make them. And God is the potter and we are the clay. God took a man called Paul and Peter and Joseph and John and Daniel and remade them and remade the world and brought joy to the world and spread the gospel of Christ. And he's coming back and God is moving pawns to suit the long game. There was a man called Warren Buffett, you've probably heard of him, one of the richest men in the world. At the age of 15, he bought shares in a company and he made a promise to himself he would never sell and he never did and he bought more and more and more and he had a phrase which he adopted it's called play the long game get over what's happening now and play for what's coming he said i made more money snoring than i did being active the bible says sit since then you have been raised with christ set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of god Paul here is applying sanctified logic. If your destiny is in heaven, make sure your desires are in heaven. And we so often get muddied and muddled with the affairs of this life to the extent we shed tears and forgetting the fact that this is all temporary and God is coming back in the person of Christ. Finally, the calculation we must get used to. James wrote that, um, "'Count it all joy, my brothers,' when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and so on and so forth. Count it all joy. It is not joyous to be going through what you're going through. It is not good to be going through some of these things. But count it as joy, in the light of the fact that there is a future which is beyond your imagination. Reality always outranks perception. Remember Jacob serving seven years for Rachel and the Bible records that they seem to him like a few days. Allow that sort of thinking to so invade your personality today that whether you've got a potential problem, a relational problem, whatever your problem, realise that it is only a few days and Christ shall return. Joy is bred within the certainty of eternity. The light from heaven will come breaking through. I want you to settle back, close your eyes, and listen as we listen to this wonderful theme that the light from heaven will come breaking through. And then I will close in prayer.
0: reaching for any promise you can hold on to, but soon you'll see just what God is teaching. The light from heaven will come breaking through, for the sun is always shining through the clouds. from heaven will come breaking through. Your spirit's heavy, your heart is broken, you've forgotten that the sky is blue, just wait before Him, the door will open, then light from heaven will come breaking through. Though the clouds May hide its view You may not see A silver lining But any day now Some way and somehow The light from heaven Will come breaking through The world around us Is growing darker But we know the word coming. Times will be harder than light from heaven will come breaking through. For the sun is always shining. Though the clouds may hide its view, you may not see.
1: our heads and our hearts and our thinking Dear God this present life can toss up so many hand grenades. This present life can invade our joy and our love for you. This present life seems to be Overtaken with hardship and sorrow. Teach us, we pray, dear God, that the light of heaven will come breaking through. Teach us, dear God, that the day will dawn when Christ Himself shall step into the clouds and call me by name to be with Him. Father, displace our fear, we pray, with the sheer joy that eternity awaits. We love and honour you to give ourselves to your care in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Robin, are you going to say something? Yeah, brilliant. Hey, thanks, Max. Love your, um,
0: love how passionate you are when you speak. It's fantastic. So thanks for that. Um, yeah.